0: In 1950, Seamus Ennis married an heir hostess from Liverpool. The wedding took place in Two Sist near Kenmare in County Kerry and they lived in London because that's where Seamus was working for the BBC. They had a son and a daughter, Catherine and Christopher, but the marriage didn't last and Seamus moved back to Ireland. For some years, the two children had no contact with their father. But they were all reunited and in many ways made up for the last years. Catherine is now a world-famous classical organist and last year she gave a concert in Doonleire with Liam O'Flynn on the pipes. During that visit, she and Christopher recalled their father, Seamus Ennis.
1: There was a young lady called Catherine who went out one day to the Lateran. (laughs) On return from her task of her, I did ask, was that walk intended or just flattering? (laughs) 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 She was very funny at the time. The same occasion as the Latherin, He, a little bloke, came up and said, I started singing, oh, Danny, boy. And, of course, Seamus was uh, absolutely speechless for once. And then he suddenly turned to me and said, tell me, Catherine, of this Mr. Sylvester, Uh, I don't know, what he called him some awful name like um, Sylvester Cod or whatever Sylvester
2: Fortescue something like that, some awful name um, Sylvester
1: Fortescue, Mr. Sylvester Fortescue will we indulge him or will we give him the frost (laughs) (laughs) and uh, sure enough we gave him a heavy frost and he didn't get it till about ten minutes later when eventually he sidled off saying that Shane was a very rude man indeed but the rest of us were in stitches by the stitch (laughs) He <laughs> didn't suffer fools gladly at all, did he?
2: Yes, that has to be said.
0: Catherine, when you, you went you went to Milltown often.
1: I went once, alas, once? only once. No, it's very much a male place, you know. I mean the fact that I'm a musician and my crust by playing music is is not important. I mean for, it's very much in the Ennis family anyway, a male thing. There was no suggestion that I should learn the pipes. Seamus once said that he would get me a set of Northumbrian pipes because they were the ladies' pipes. (laughs) But it was about my 21st birthday, but it never was forthcoming. I fear there may have been a cash shortage at the time or it may have slipped his mind. But um, alas, I never got that pleasure.
0: But you took to music.
1: Well, I am a musician and it's uh, of a very different nature. And Seamus never came to hear me play. I'm an organist and Seamus never came to hear me play. Once when I was playing in Dunleary a concert... I said to him, are you going to come? And he said, no, I don't want to steal your thunder, Catherine. <laughs> and yet when I made my first record uh, LP and sent it to him, he was thrilled. He wrote back a long letter saying, I counted the diapasons on the C-sharp side and then I counted the principles on the C-natural side and I specified the various trumpets and clarions uh, from the top of the organ to the bottom. And he made all sorts of plays about the number of pipes and the number of notes and the great long screed of wish i had it here i it. Really, it's so funny the, again the, the play on words and he was very proud but when we used to go to gigs that he was doing Seamus would say i'm very proud that my daughter who's got a scholarship to read organs at Oxford University if you please <laughs> is here in the audience and now my son is going to stand up and play with me <laughs> which is fine because as you've heard Chris was very much akin to the music making Seamus did where you know, I wouldn't have been able to cope in that sort of environment at all.
2: I do think, though, that I was only tolerated when he used to drag him to the stage. <laughs> Not by him, I mean, he was very pleased, but whoever was organising the the gig... Um,
1: this was a peccadillo of the old man, you mean, to bring yeah. up his son, yeah, that's right. The but the implication was very much that it was a man's job and the women should be knitting on the sideline, which was something, that, yeah, as a Londoner, I felt very strongly that I didn't like, but you tolerated for the moment because you were fond of your father. <laughs>
0: What are you doing there on the table in front of us?
1: Well, I'm sorry to be doing this in this... uh, Well, we're doing this fascinating chat, but um, I have a concert this evening with Liam O'Flynn, no, the first great piper in Ireland, according to (laughs) Seamus. And uh, we're playing some of Seamus's slow airs, The Lament for the Fox and Easter Snow. And I'm just checking I have all the dots down here so that I don't, you know, go wrong, because I have to rely on the notes in front of me in a concert. I know that the pipers can do it all from memory, but... I have to jot down the harmonies that I have to play because it feels so unnatural to be playing chords behind what is essentially vocal music, just one line music.
0: The Easter Snow itself is a tune with a particular significance that we're talking
2: about, James. That's,
1: That's right. That's what he
2: named his plot, where he lived.
1: He uh, made a sign, he painted a sign saying Easter Snow. Snow.
2: That was his name for
1: it. He had a very particular fondness for that tune, and I can mm. see why. It's a very haunting melody. Even though it's in a major key, it's a very plangent tune. It's lovely. there. It was difficult to get to the airport afterwards. You used to have to tell him the flight was six hours sooner than it actually was so you'd get there in time. He really didn't want to let us go. It was extraordinary.
2: unconventional views of car mechanics one was to take out the thermostat because it was a newfangled trip to something else to go wrong and of course if you drive a car hard say across Ireland then without a thermostat the boiling point of the water is reduced and you tend to get the thing over boiling and uh, of course this was just another excuse to stop more frequently maybe, but. and he always used to tune the car to a very weak mixture. He said this was the piper's tuning. You have to remember the whole story of our family, uh, which is that... Um, we were born in London.
1: When Seamus was, working for, was working
2: for the BBC. When was working for the And um, when I was six and a half, or six and three quarters, stamped on my memory, <laughs> and herself was a little younger, our parents separated, and he went back to Ireland, and we stayed over there, and we didn't see him for a long time. But during those early years, I did a fair bit of travelling with him, and I stayed in Finglas and met his parents, and I've got differing memories of both of them. Um, his father taking me down the fields for a cack. <laughs> can't can't repeat that, can you? <laughs> and uh, with the shovel. And uh, and my grandmother, who was very fierce. I was terrified of her, absolutely terrified of her. She used to breed Alsatians, and she was a big woman. And or uh, well maybe she wasn't, but I remember as a big woman she bred station. she was very fierce and she used to shout at me to eat my breakfast all the time and I was terrified of going there
1: and my mother was working well she was an air stewardess she was working in Africa and all sorts of places um, married Seamus after a bout of malaria <laughs> and and um, we, we lived she often says, London.
2: well, the balance of her mind was disturbed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we can understand why she did it. But anyway, um, she, she, we lived in London. And then when Seamus came back to Ireland, we stayed in London. And we were born and reared really there. So the first time I came to Ireland, in my living memory, was when I was 19, when I was an undergraduate at Oxford. I met my father while I was there. And um, it was a wonderful trip. We went over to stay in Milton, Milton Malby to Macy O'Friel's. And that was a real experience that's stamped on my memory very strongly. And every time
2: I used to come across, we'd go to the Willie Clancy flower at Milltown and stay at Maisie's, And that was the highlight of the tour whenever I did come across.
1: But um, Seamus was out a lot when he was working. And when he he stopped working at the BBC, then he was in the bed all day and we'd get up and go to school and uh, there would be Seamus just lying there. And um, he wouldn't be there when we got back. He was always always a
2: late riser anyway because his work in broadcasting was to late, a late start and then um, planning for the day ahead
0: Oh yes, evening, it was very you know, important, George, meeting
1: people uh, in the pub yeah.
0: Well in all those intervening years then, was there any contact between Ye and him?
1: Well, no, not at all except that once he wrote a letter to because we'd moved house he couldn't contact us directly but once he'd moved Uh, Once, sorry, he wrote to my grandmother in Liverpool and she passed the letter on to us and I remember being very excited about that Do do you remember that time Chris when I was about 14 and I wrote him a long letter we were both at boarding school my mother had sent him our addresses and I wrote him a long letter and never heard anything back and when we were looking through his papers this Christmas we got round to it because we were so upset after his death we put it off I found the letter that he'd written in answer to me then and he'd never sent uh, I don't know why. It was a lovely letter any child would have been thrilled to receive, full of the sort of typical word games that Seamus was so good at. A very loving letter and we didn't... I never received it and we never he knew. He did make
2: another attempt, of course, which is when we finally did.
1: He was ill then. He realised it was a sort of last-ditch attempt. He'd had a crash and he was very, very low. Yeah. And he finally got in touch with us, and we received a phone number, and we cast lots as to which one of us should make the telephone call. And the lot fell on me, and I rang up, and I said, hello, can I speak to Seamus Ennis? And he said, that's me. And I said, oh, hello. It was very difficult. I said, uh, this is your daughter. Remember me? I was the one, you know, who was four with a short hair, and <laughs> it was very difficult to know what to say, but he was wonderful. He said, I have a big lump in my throat, Catherine, and it's lovely to hear you, and oh, I was all right from then on, really. But I had a feeling of um, slight resentment because he was so wonderful with children. You ever saw him with children? He was—he created a magical world of his own and told stories. And he was completely devoted to them. In the time he was with them, he created mystery and fun and uh, you know just magic. And when I met him again, I, I slightly resented the fact that he deprived me of it. I thought it was very selfish, but there was a, t- that took a bit of getting over.
3: There was a man once, and he had three daughters. He was a widower. And whether he was a forester or whatever, he had to work all day long and came back to his dinner in the evening. His three daughters would have dinner prepared for him in the evening, the night time. And it was his fashion after dinner to go to the dresser and take the flute or the fife or tin whistle, whatever he had, and play his three daughters some music. And his daughters would always look forward to the music at night after their father had his dinner. This particular night he came in and he ate his dinner and he said, I'm sorry girls, there'll be no music tonight because I have a very heavy cold on me and I'm going straight to bed. Ah, they said with disappointment. The father went to bed and the three girls studied on a plan. They went out and they bought a bottle of rum ..and lemon and cloves... ..and they brought it in... ..and they made him up a big, hot bumper of rum punch... ..with plenty of rum and lemon and cloves... ..and scalding hot water... ..and brought it up to his bedside... ..and here, Daddy, drink that. And he drank it down. And the next morning, his cold was gone. When he came down to his breakfast... ..the first girl said, ''Did the rum do?'' And the second girl said, Did the rum do da? And the third girl said, Did the rum do daddy? Yes, fine, he said, and my cold is gone. Wouldn't that be a great idea for a tune now, he said. Did the rum do da, do da, do da? Did the rum do da, do daddy? Did the rum do da, do da, do da? Did the rum do da, do daddy? And over to the dresser, and he took the flute and he played it up for them then. Newly composed on the spot.
2: I can remember singing one song before I could string a sentence together, which was a children's song which he taught me. Yes, he was always uh,
1: singing in the house and always fun when he was around.
3: Uncle Rat went out to ride Kitty alone, Kitty alone. Uncle Rat went out to ride Kitty alone and I... Uncle Rat went out to ride Sword and buckle by his side With my tack, my Terry, dip I, Kitty alone and I The first he met was Lady Mouse Kitty alone, Kitty alone The first he met was Lady Mouse Kitty alone and I The first he met was Lady Mouse Down by the side of her uncle's house With my tack, my Terry, dip I, Kitty alone and I
4: Uncle Rat, may I marry Lady Mouse? Yes, kind sir, and half my house. Cox my Kitty alone, Kitty alone and I, sir. And where will the wedding breakfast be? Up on the top of a holly tree. Cox my Kitty alone, Kitty alone and I, sir. The first to come in was a bumblebee with her fiddle on her knee. Cox my Kitty alone, Kitty alone and I, sir. The next to come in was a crawling snail with her bagpipes under her tail. Cox McCary, kitty alone, kitty alone, and I, sir. So any day you can hear in the bug a horse and croaking widower frog. Cox McCary, kitty alone, (laughs) kitty alone, and I, sir.
5: (laughs) 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 Brother.
1: (laughs) It's frightening, actually, sitting, watching him sing and listening to him. It's so like my father, isn't it? Right, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible the, the way he grins and the way the mouth moves and everything. is quite apart from the sound of the voice. Because you were saying once you he was did... a better a... singer than I am. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Come, come, come. <laughs> but the, um, you were saying that you did a tape once with him.
2: Um, we made... Seamus and I sang together in, in mill um, time once. And there was an American girl recording it. And she played it back. And it was the first time I'd ever heard myself singing on tape. And it was astonishing because it did sound very much like we were double-tracking. And uh, singing a couple of funny old things that he taught me. Then
0: he was he was very proud of you, wasn't he? Then
2: he said so. But I think it, I think it was a source of disappointment that I didn't learn to play the pipes. A disappointment to me as well, I might say. Um, but as he always said, it was seven years learning, seven years practicing, and seven years playing before you could start uh, to say you could actually play the pipes
3: you know there's an awful lot to be said about this Irish traditional folk music and folklore because first of all you have to learn it and first you must learn the talk and then you must learn the grip and after that you must learn the truckly howl and then you have the whole lot only just to keep on practicing it because uh, Seamus Ennis knows far more about this than even the old folk lordy-lordy themselves, because Seamus Ennis once met a little Leprashauny truckly how at the bottom of the garden doth and up the garden path, which came up from that, in the Limereti-Limereti Hillhockers, before the Earthian Throve, before the Leprashaun area, and long before the Argy Foray. And that was in the Deep pondoom. Doom, before the Emerald Isle was ever dropped in the
0: water. I think he used to like sitting with people like Dennis Murphy and Paul O'Keefe making up uh, yes. <laughs> verses.
2: Do you mean limericks and things, perhaps? I'm, I'm not sure how you'd be able to broadcast some of these, but there was the um, Dennis Murphy limerick he told me of, which was, there was an old woman, goddammer. You couldn't get anyone to flam her. The man came in all fooled with a three inch tool and gave her three lips for a tanner.
5: <laughs>
2: and then there was there was an old woman from Schneider who would throw her leg over a spider, but the spider got mad and pulled out his lad and swore on his oath he would ride her. <laughs> now would that be Dennis Murphy or Padre Gokey? I can't remember. But, uh. Would they be ones of, of, of medium strength? <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Um, that he, he could repeat those in front of ladies.
1: <laughs> oh, he did. He repeated anything he liked in front of ladies. Oh, not the
2: really grim stuff, of oh, he course. Did. Not I even in front of you.
1: <laughs> oh, he did. He, he liked to shock me, in a way, because he didn't know me at Fantastic. all. He, liked to, he treated me with an extraordinary reverence on the one. I think he had a strange thing about women, actually. He treated women as China dolls, sort of somebody to put up on the pedestal. And then, in the next moment he was more ribald with them than he was with the men, just to test them, to see whether, how far he could go, verbally as it were. Maybe. Yeah. And he didn't quite know how to... On, then, on the other hand, he was very uh, demanding of women. He'd order them around, like poor Maisie, I think, had, had a terrible time of him. And I think Anne, your mother, Anne Brown, who had him to stay uh, quite a lot, um, had a, had a problems with having to it run wasn't around so the kitchen. not so much
2: order, I think that's probably a little unfair. He would ask in a polite sort of way...
1: In a voice uh, which uh, brooked no negative response, I would say.
2: Yeah. But then people did always fuss around. Huh?
1: Well, he'd stay
6: in bed most of the day. But I mean, once he'd get that drop in the morning, he'd be grand until maybe four or five in the evening, he'd get up there. But as far as eating is concerned, I don't know what kind of a man he was, how he lived on all he'd take in the day. I couldn't, I'd often be given out to him he wouldn't have his meals. They'd be cooked, let there go, and you'd have to be cutting them down again, all cups of tea, pots of tea, pots of tea.
0: He, he never had a big dinner?
6: No, very rarely, very rarely. He had a fad one time for black pudding, and you'd have to cook him at two o'clock in the morning for him. <laughs> he didn't stay here that year. I don't know why but they booked him in at Hannan's because, God, I was kind of afraid, you know, that he'd be drinking too much and I didn't want him to be drinking. Poor man. I terrible respect for James. We over his drinking.
2: Well, the sad thing was that we were coming over to see him together for we the had, first time and we, we had, had the tickets booked, booked and, and, and we had the phone call before. the week before that he died and I hadn't seen him for over a year before that. And I think the last time it had been... When would it have been? It's it's seven years ago now, I suppose. I don't think it was in England. Maybe it was in Holland. No, that that? was ten years ago. (laughs) No, I saw him after that. Anyway, I shouldn't be using up your tape trying to remember.
1: Chris and I never were um, together with Seamus at all, except in the odd gig in London. When we visited him, it would be on our own. I don't separately, know why that was. Separately. separately.
2: Well, accommodation dictated. Accommodation
1: sort of dictated that, but I think he preferred it that way too. He could then get the maximum mileage out of each of us. And he only had one audience to sort of play to for a solid time because he was very much, he wanted you awake all day and all night to paying attention. He was so desperate to cram in as much as possible because I suppose we hadn't seen him for so long. And mm. well, I think we felt the same, didn't we? We were yeah. very, very keen to. But we'd to often be mad. up till seven or eight in oh, the morning. Oh, terrible. And then he'd be, uh, he'd be poking playing you.
2: tune after tune on the
1: pipes. And, and then he'd wake did up in the morning, wondrous? poke you inside. Did you ever hear this one getting said? And tell you a silly uh, joke. Did you, to you ever hear
2: this one getting said? <laughs> Some expression. And one one night I had a tin whistle lesson until about seven in the morning. And, and we played cards all night sometimes. When was the last time you saw him, Catherine?
1: I saw him the summer before he died, in August. He died in October, and I was over in August. And the last thing he said to me was, he handed me a tape of The Lament for the Fox and said, play this on the organ. And I said, no, it won't work, it won't work. And after he died, I was doing a lot of travelling at that time and a lot of driving, and I played this tape over and over again in the car because I was so devastated by his loss. I don't know why it was, but I was extremely... I mean, my life went to pieces for six months after he died. It was extraordinary. And I listened to this an awful lot, and I began to play it, and I began to see that, yes, it could work. There could be it, There could be a possibility for my instrument to play my father's music. And that was a wonderful sort of consolation. In fact, the year afterwards, I came to play in Dunleary and I played the Lament for the Fox on the organ. And I enjoyed it. I don't know what everybody else thought, but it was very beautiful for me to actually play it. And that's, in a sense, why it's lovely to be able to to play with Liam, to play some of Seamus's melodies, we'll be playing it tonight. Yeah, uh-huh. to play what some of um, Seamus's favourite tunes, and for me to get involved in it, something more evocative and more um, real about the music than about the sort of memories we've been talking about. For me, it's a lot more moving, a lot Best more time important.
2: to stumble through
1: it on the whistle. Ah, <laughs> oh, no, you can sing it beautifully and you can play it well. But uh, so that was really—I had a, a time out here in that summer, and. I spent a few days with him and I discovered that he was ill and he wouldn't admit to me that he was ill. Out of a most guided sense of chivalry, he didn't want me to suffer, that he was suffering.
5: We
2: first heard, in fact, when we were discussing which day we were arriving and he just had a telephone installed, which was great because always before we'd have to ring the farm and sort of wait a couple of hours maybe. Do you know what to happened? We
1: were waiting at the airport for him to come well, over. Well, that was the other the thing. John he was Cage coming over for thing. John and Cage thing in on. London,
2: and Catherine and I were waiting at the airport all day, and he didn't come on any of the planes.
1: We rang up the farm and said, no. where is he? And they said, "Oh, did no. you not know he has a telephone now? So he rang no. up.
2: Well, I rang up that evening. Were you there? Was I rang up. We both rang way?
1: up. And there was a, a somebody who couldn't talk at the other end. He'd no. had a terrible throat... I mean he had throat cancer and he had had um, radium treatment and he couldn't speak and he was making clacking sounds as if he yeah. had no tongue and for he'd a man on,
2: he'd been on chemotherapy for a long long time It turned out, but he'd not let on to us and um, for a man we noticed he... that the uh, that his bedroom was like an apothecary's shop for years <laughs> mm-hmm. but we put that down to hypochondria and the, the on the phone anyway he admitted to me, and he said, I, didn't w- I don't want Catherine to know this, but I've had, radi- uh, I've had um, radiotherapy. I have cancer. And I sort of shocked, you know, Bateman cartoon, the other end. And um, he, th- he then said to me, but I tell you this, Chris, I absolutely refuse to die. I absolutely and steadfastly refuse to die.
1: that time he didn't turn up and I spoke to him on the phone and he couldn't talk mm. I felt this is just terrible for a man of the verbal abilities of Seamus not to be able to communicate verbally was the I worst possible to way him for him, well. him to, to go and that was cruel it was like Beethoven being deaf and it was the same sort of well, obviously, uh, <laughs> it's a wild was, allegory but it's the same sort today. of thing I suggested to him that I was going to point a tape recorder at him and he was, I was going to get him to talk about all the times he'd been off collecting. All the people you'd known, the Brendan Beans, the Louis MacNeese's in London uh, in the 50s, everybody in there. Everybody we knew, he knew. He didn't talk about. it, He didn't volunteer this stuff. He'd say, "Ah, he was a terrible, you know, he was a terrible showman. He wanted to drink everyone else under the table and write people <laughs> off like that." But he was suddenly excited by this possibility of someone doing something about his memories, because I knew that so much would die with him, which it has, musically as well as um, historically. So we had this plan, and it was going to start off in October. We were both coming over. We were going to stay with him. And uh, didn't he? Didn't he? Take a journey before us, he snuck out on us. us. <laughs> right. It was very sad. But we should have done it a long time before. It was always yeah. you know, hindsight one always wants to do that.
2: rang somewhere, was it the mother, somebody rang the mother, they tracked down the various numbers that um, somebody had had from years ago um, via Liverpool, my mother's parents, and my mother had got a message.
1: And my mother rang and told me. And,
2: and Catherine phoned me and said, what the hell's going on, you know, and I phoned up the number, my uncle Des answered, and I heard all about it. And then we cashed in our tickets and got earlier ones. <laughs>
1: That's right. And and we came over get, together got in the following day. Yeah, it was, it was instead of ever. taking a trip for you know to, to yeah. talk to Seamus, we took a trip to the funeral, which was the, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And about yours, all those people there. It's, you weren't there, Peter. Were you? you were in Germany. It was a
4: great funeral.
2: <laughs> it was a, it's it quite was a way to go. A great funeral, and um, it was music very sad, was but it was so. It was good. It was so cathartic. And Liam uh,
1: played the lament for the fox in the service, yeah. and he played the by the, the river of gems in the churchyard afterwards.
2: That was the other way round, I think.
1: You always know best. That's the trouble with uh, the men in this family. They? <laughs> it was. It was. The, I may be
2: wrong, but I very much don't. <laughs> <remember>. <laughs> That's right, as <laughs> himself used to say.
7: Friends. It might seem right that if a word is to be spoken by this graveside that it should be spoken by one who shared the talents the gifts of the wonderful man whom we have laid to rest another piper another singer another storyteller and thank God They are here. They have come to acknowledge a brother and a fellow artist. But in a way, perhaps, it is more fitting that the word should be spoken by one who had none of his, or has none of his gifts, but one with whom he shared them, as you, Father, spoke this morning, one who can come here to say, thank you, Seamus, for what you brought to us of joy, and beauty, and a sense of belonging.
2: The the great thing about funerals here, of course, is that um, they are meant to be cathartic. Um, you don't sort of go all solemn and stoical and you, pretend you to be and coping with it.
1: I cried more pints of water that day than I think the rest of us drank. <laughs> yeah. oh, of we order. had a good we
2: had a good old cry. Actually, it was very embarrassing because um, we were up at the head of the okay. procession, and I was bursting to go to the jacks we'd been in the pub all morning and uh, we were back here in fact in the evening and we saw it on the television on the television news and uh, they had immortalized myself breaking off from the procession to duck in the back door of the pub and to run out the front door (laughs) adjusting my dress (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to rejoin the procession up like the church. But there were
1: funny moments, I remember, like, you know, in the church, <laughs> in the church it was impossible to uh, to keep a straight face. I was crying buckets, and, and Chris was so funny, because when they brought in the coffin, not as they did do in England and, you know, did in the old days, on the, the shoulders of 12 strong men, but on a horrible sort of pram. Stainless steel jo- pram. <laughs> and Chris turned to me, I was incensed because of the lack of dignity of this, you know, and Chris turned to me and said, We have the wheels, Catherine, which is exactly what Seamus used to say about his enormous pram of a car, you know. And then when they put the coffin into an enormous sort of Ford Zephyr lookalike, you know, Undertaker's car, (laughs) this was a moment for, you know, it was very Mm. difficult. I couldn't stop the hysterical laughing as well as the crying. It was very funny.
7: Now, death mars the parchment of his forehead. But oh, for him, I know the earth is mild. The windy fidgets of September grasses never tease a mind that loved the wild. So drink his peace. The grey juice of the barley runs with a light that ever pleased his eye. While old flames nod and gossip in the hearthstone. And only the young winds cry. Laba imask, naya vagus, erin. The
4: time I really cracked
2: up. The time I really cracked up. I've been fairly stuck all day, you know, the way I've been brung up. <laughs> dragged up. And uh, there was a lot of back slapping and sorry for your trouble and all this,
5: and well, a fair the, bit of,
2: of liquid conservation. And after the funeral, uh, the music yeah. started and the drinking really started. And there was a little man and we made we made a we made a getaway to the pub towards Dublin at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And um, we we were in that, and the timer really cracked up, as I say. And this little wizened fellow with about one tooth in his head and a came collection. over Brilliant and said, and said to me, um, "You're Seamus Ennis. Seamus is by." Yes, says I, and he said, he grabbed me by the neck and said, "I dug your father's grave, and I was proud with every shovelful I took." And I just burst into tears. You know, it was terrible. Very poignant. <laughs>